Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. Earlier this year, the first ever Islamic Arts Biennale opened in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. You've probably seen images of its exhibitions and installations, which unfurl in this vast landscape of Islamic culture beneath the canopies of Jeddah's Western Hajj Terminal. It's a striking example of the refocusing of an international art and design discourse on non-Western cultures and practices. In this light, as its artistic director Samaya Valley has explained, the Biennale is nothing short of an historic moment, not only in its reassessment of Islamic art, but also in how it frames new perspectives on the wider Muslim world. Valley herself also stands as an embodiment of this cultural shift. Born in 1990, she's a Muslim South African architect with her practice called Counterspace, based between London and Johannesburg. Counterspace first came to prominence after it was commissioned to design the 2021 Serpentine Pavilion in London. And in the wake of that project, as well as Valley's more recent involvement in the Jeddah Biennale, there's been a surge of interest in her work and in her words. In the past few months alone, she's delivered lectures at Harvard and Columbia, been featured on the BBC and in the pages of Harper's Bazaar and Forbes, and has been appointed Honorary Fellow of the Royal Architectural Institute of Canada, as well as Honorary Professor of Practice at the Bartlett School of Architecture. I met Valley in April of 2023 at the Royal College of Art in London, where she and I both teach, to talk more about her experience of this seemingly meteoric rise and to better understand the evolution of her practice and the direction she wants to take it. So here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. For me, an interesting way to start the conversation is with this question of how Counterspace first began. Because as I understand it, it's undergone a series of evolutions. At the outset, it was a student collective, which included Sarah de Villiers, Amina Kaskar, Michael Flynn, and Brett Thurston. And then subsequently became a more condensed version of that collective with just you, Amina, and Sarah. And then there is this moment, I think, leading up to the production of the Serpentine Pavilion, where things seem to change. And the practice, as we know it now, crystallized into one directed entirely by you. And I'm really curious, if you're comfortable with it, trying to trace that evolution Mm -hmm. from the collective we of counterspace to the singular I. So the practice was never branded as a student collective, but it's true that it did start in um, my master's studio uh, with my friends. And the intent at that time was to be able to pour a love for Johannesburg into a space. Mm-hmm. I really felt at the time that what I was seeing in the city and what I was experiencing with my friends, the energy that we had around Johannesburg, we were not seeing in the canon or in the profession. And I was worried that we'd leave school and become a little bit jaded. Um, And Counterspace was born at that time. And at the same time, 
I started teaching at the Graduate School of Architecture as well. So I started to, I think, develop a pedagogical practice with Professor Leslie Loco um, when she founded the school. And that contributed hugely to my confidence in being able to define a practice and pedagogy that came out of that context. Um, in the beginning, I think it was, everybody had a full-time job and it was really something that was seen as outside of our practice. Um, and I, I had a full-time job at a museum and narrative practice in Johannesburg called the Library Special Projects. Really, really interesting practice and I think also just subconsciously, I, I don't know why, but I wasn't working for architects. I was practicing as an architect, but my my bosses at the time, um, one of them is a fine artist and industrial designer, and the other is a researcher curator with a background in fashion. And the work that we were doing was very much about the history of the country. So. I worked on narrative and exhibit designs for the Women's Living Heritage Monument, for the Alexandra Heritage Center. There were projects that we worked on also that involved the history of Sam and Zima's life and jazz archives of um, Mamelodi and, and South Africa more broadly. So I feel like at that time I also started to get to know the history of my country intimately. And although Counterspace always had a playful attitude, I feel like that time also started to imbue a little bit of what's at stake by having a practice that does have a different attitude and why it's incredibly necessary. Until that point, I think I was operating entirely from a place of instinct. Um, and at that time, everyone's career trajectories were heading in different directions, but the practice has always embodied a collective energy. And from the beginning, we have always collaborated with many different disciplines, with different designers. We've always worked with other creatives in our design process. Uh, we've designed with choreographers, we've designed with curators, we've designed with um, people in narrative and literature fields. Um, of course, strong aspect of co-design with community voices and we've also designed platforms for community engagement. So I think we, we still embody a we energy in the practice and I think also early on I could have decided to change the name of the practice to my own name but I, I was very decisive in not wanting to do that because I believe very much in having a collective practice. And also, I think um, even though you said that the practice kind of crystallized in being led by me at a particular moment, it, it, I think it was leading there for a very long time, but I was almost too heartbroken to see it because I believe so much in having a collective practice. And also, we tried very hard to make it work in so many different ways. But it is a little bit like a marriage. And I think we also don't talk enough about how difficult collective work is. There is this complete romanticization of what it means to work in a collective, or even what it means 
actually even thinking now what it means to collaborate with an artist to collaborate with with others it it is messy and it's complex and it's magical but it's also difficult and i think to s the way that i see collaboration now is that we enter into it intentionally and conscientiously each time with the intent of a project and then we do it again for the next project. So we're continuously renewing our intent to collaborate, why we're doing so, what we're bringing, how we're honoring each other so that we don't fall into patterns and dependencies. Um, but yes, I think it's something we should talk about more often. So thank you for asking the question. I also think that sometimes when someone is perceived as um, taking something on, there's probably such a negative connotation attached to that in a way. It's like the I that emerged from the we. But there's so much heartbreak and difficulty associated with these things and, and even forming a practice with a certain kind of ambition and then having to shift it in the face of difficult realities is it's complicated. So. Yeah, thank you for asking. I think, to me, it's not necessarily a negative connotation, this transition into a more individual pursuit. I think it's a complicated one, and it's deeply fascinating to me, mm -hmm. because it seems to occur for myriad reasons, some of which I could imagine are internal and specific to one's own ambitions, but others which we could start to think of as a kind of cultural need or an external need for some kind of singular representative or figurehead. And I feel like since the Serpentine, in a way, that's what you've become. At least to me as a kind of layperson audience, as someone who consumes architectural media, to me, Counterspace is synonymous with an image of you, literally. Um, as a young woman of color, a young Muslim woman, who is doing provocative, challenging, and also highly abstract work around very, very pressing questions about cultural identity. And I wonder, was there a kind of shift in the way you are perceived or your perceived responsibilities following the completion of the Serpentine? I think the intentions that I had for practice have always been. Um, so the intent to be able to find design form and aesthetic expression and creative expression for our identities and for our hybridities, for our place and the territories that we occupy. Um, but I do think that there is a safety in hiding in a collective. And I did rely on that for, for a long time. I, I, and I often, I often ask myself why, actually. I wonder if there is something about um, the cultural realm that I grew up in, or being a woman, or w what the reasoning is 
but as I, as I said earlier, I think it, it, it could have crystallized perhaps a lot sooner than it did, but I didn't want to let go of, of the image of the collective for some reason. So I think um, that perhaps the intentions of the practice have always been there, but maybe now there's more of a willingness and an understanding of why it's important to take that on and to, to, to take accountability. Let's go back for a moment. Let's go back to your upbringing in Pretoria, mm -hmm. in this um, township um, called Ladium, mm -hmm. which, as you've explained elsewhere, was a product of apartheid. It was um, a segregated community, um, um, explicitly um, Indians only. Mm -hmm. And you were born, as I gather, months after the release of Nelson Mandela. Days. Days. Five days. And I think you were four when the first democratic elections were held. Mm -hmm. So there's a historical moment that in a way um, builds a kind of mm, narrative or dare I say even mythology around your self-formation, which I, I want to explore with you. And if, if we kind of, if we began with this point of collectivity how did, how did that influence you growing up in, I think, a religious community as well, mm -hmm. in an apartheid context? How do you think that's informed the way you think about um, collective practice? I grew up in a small community, as you said, and I think we had a very strong community life. So um, doing things with others and taking part in initiatives and being a part of something has always been a part of my world. You know, it's, it's Ramadan now and I've been thinking so much about practicing with my community at home and reflecting on what it means to practice in a different community here. And I, I have been over the last days also remembering charity initiatives, mass fast break, um, so so many things that I grew up with as inherent that you know were I think different to perhaps being here, where, which is also something really beautiful to be part of a community breaking fast is something special because. It's not something that's, that has been historically probably openly practiced in, in London as it is being now at the, at the V&A and with the Open Iftar project and so on. But in my community, that just was life. I never call it secular, but my life outside of that and inside of that just intertwined and hybridized very naturally. Um, of course, later on when I became an architect, started to complexify where boundaries were for, for different things. But in the beginning it was in, of my life, it was very much uh, that community life, religious life, communal rituals, individual rituals, all just very much a part of, of daily living. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine what it must have been like to grow up in a community that was informed by apartheid ideology and physically shaped by it as well. But what I imagine is that for a long time, 
or possibly a short time, but at least throughout a certain period of childhood, those boundaries were invisible and this was simply the norm. Yes. And I wonder at what point you began to see the walls around you. Yeah, well, architecture school, actually. But you're absolutely right. I think perhaps even now, even architects, um, these boundaries are still very much invisible and inherited and subconscious. And it's strange because we talk about them and we're taught, uh, even at that age, what apartheid is, what it meant to surpass it, what it means to be a part of the new diverse South Africa at that time. Um, so we know and we also understood why we lived apart from others, uh, that it was possible to not live apart from others anymore. But of course, living in a community like mine is largely tied to the fact that you know people stayed on in their communities and they chose to build up their communities rather than leave. But also for many communities, uh, people couldn't necessarily move to uh, white areas economically because property prices are different, closer to the center. And so the way that apartheid was set up is so incredibly resilient that it's still completely perpetuated in South Africa. Um, and yes, you're right in that it's not something that, even though you know it, it's not something that you think about all the time or question every day or even see. It's just completely become subliminal and subconscious. And I think when I started to study architecture, so I also had half of my life in Johannesburg, which I talk about frequently. My mother is from Johannesburg and my grandfather had stores in inner city Johannesburg that I spent a lot of my childhood in. Um, so, you know, walking in the inner city was very much a part of my life. And I studied architecture undergrad in Pretoria. And then after a year of working in practice became disillusioned with the profession. Um, and, you know, wasn't sure that I wanted to be an architect after seeing what it was like to be in practice. I was very much in love with form, in love with design, but also I think if I think back to even my projects in undergrad, there was always something that was seen as controversial in the work. And I think that was a desire that I had to express something that I couldn't articulate at the time. Um, and after a year of practice, I took a, a gap year where I traveled, um, I did other things, I studied Arabic, I went to many places, um, and I also volunteered with a friend's NGO. Uh, his name is John O'Bennett, and the NGO is called One to One Agency of Engagement. Um, and he was doing a lot of work in the inner city and also in informal settlements, thinking about um, uh, in situ situations for being able to reblock and um, upgrade and so on. And my work is not necessarily in that trajectory now, but at that time, I think 
I've had a, a re-engagement with Johannesburg and I found myself returning to things that fascinated me in the city as a child, as an adult. And I also realized then that it was quite rare for someone from my socioeconomic background, which is middle class, to, be, to have had an engagement with the inner city like that. Um, and, and that's something that I, I really value and I started to value at that time. I remember things, so many things from that time. One of them very vividly that stands out to me and I think is also emblematic of this moment where I started to think about architecture differently. Um, we, were, we were in a meeting with community leaders and Jono was describing a double-story walk-up for the settlement and asking, thinking about it as a plausible solution and presenting it. And someone in that community said that in that specific community, that wasn't something that uh, they were for because the second realm or the realm of the roof level is the realm that's reserved for the ancestors. And when a soul leaves a body, at the end of its life, it needs to have a clear passage through and or without interruption. Um, and that was the first time that I'd heard a belief system and it's like that articulated in architectural and spatial terms. And I think it left me with an understanding that there are, and perhaps it wasn't articulated at the time, but there are so many other conditions, so many other ways of being, so many mythologies and so many hybridities that are waiting to be translated into architectural and design form and that have been historically but that have been somehow ravaged and stopped because of apartheid and colonization. Mm. This is interesting to me, this ambition to translate what we could think of as a kind of ambience into a cultural ambience into architectural form. And it's, a, it's an ambition you've voiced elsewhere. It seems to be, in a way, the driving motivation behind your work. Mm. And I want to now ground this insight in something specific, which is your thesis project, the end of your time as an architecture student, which, in a way, was doing precisely that, reimagining an abandoned mine wasteland as a productive color factory, extracting and cleaning apar apartheid buffer zones and creating um, these kind of pigmented objects uh, as a result. And to me, this is exciting because I think it foreshadows ambitions you're trying to further now. I wondered if you could talk a bit more about this thesis project and what to you persists in it, in the current work you're doing? No one's ever asked me that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I often think back to that project because I think everything I'm doing is that project still, somehow. It's a, and no matter how much we think we get away from it, I think that, um, that method of working is still very much present in my practice now. It was highly misunderstood in my master's year and very polarizing. 
We don't have to put this in the podcast. No, I think we should, if you're okay <laughs> with it. I mean, this is okay. precisely why it's interesting. Okay. So it was highly polarizing at the time. And I remember in my exam, if I'm not mistaken, the range of grades was um, you know, deeply polarized, ranging from 32% to 92% or something like that. Um, and a lot of people felt very strongly and very touched that this should not be considered architecture. When I look at it now, and even when I think about all the students I've worked with and the projects that we've made together, I think that it's not controversial at all and it is deeply spatial and architectural. And perhaps it wouldn't have been controversial here, I'm not sure. But at the time... We're sitting in the RCA right now, and I can assure you, it most certainly wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but I, I, I think um, at the time, and still, the canon that I was in and inherited, and part of the reason that Counterspace was formed, is that it was very specific and um, traditional, and it was very much focused on buildings as we know them and on developing a trade language, I think. Of course, developing a design language, but within that specific trade language as we know it. So there was a strong focus on the resolution of a building as a thesis project. And my project did make a building and did also put forth material suggestions for a building. Yes, it was the material was entirely this pigment made of recycled mine waste. But I think for a thesis project, even thinking about it now, I do think perhaps it would be expensive, but it's totally materially realizable. Um, but the intent of the project was really to work as an archaeologist to bring together many different unseen and invisible layers of that part of the city. So the ritual life in that buffer zone, which had um, Zionist Christian churches and Shemba ritual churches housed on it. So ephemeral uh, religious and ritual activity in that buffer zone. Um, there, you know, there is also an intent to work with this idea of the subconscious of the city and of this traumatic past in the city and thinking about how we re-engage with that consciously, but also how we transform those spaces into spaces of community and gathering and ritual for a hybridity of communities. Um, and I think that that method of working with the site expansively. So thinking about its physical context and condition, but then also thinking about its tentacles and all of the other territories it reaches and the other forces and histories it taps into. And working to bring those out in a site is something that my practice is deeply engaged in. And also I think developing a kind of diasporic logic, a logic that is active and present on the site, but also has tentacles and fragments that extend to other sites physically and programmatic, pro programmatically and how it brings together different worlds.
segueing into a discussion about the serpentine. But before we go there, I want to focus more on this, not only this thesis project, but other projects adjacent to it in your work. One is this essay, Golden Plateaus, which was published in EFLUX in 2019. Um, and the other is Folded Skies, which feels like a direct, mm -hmm. it is, it's inheriting a lot from the student project. I mean, maybe if we start with Folded Skies, these are, for listeners who haven't seen them, aesthetic objects, they're art objects, they're sculptural objects, which consist of folded reflective discs with the hypnotic kind of dark iridescent gradient on top of them. They're beautiful gem-like objects that uh, stand in a landscape, I think in a winery, or at least they're exhibited mm -hmm. um, on the grounds of a winery in South Africa. And to me, when I see them, I think of artists like Olafar Eliasson. I think of environmental art. But I also think of luxury in a way that I can't help because they are so beautiful. <laughs> and because, because I think of the, the context of patronage maybe around their exhibition. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also think about this collective problem we have with how we make sense of the destruction we've wrought upon the earth. Hmm. And how there's a plethora of reactions we could have to that. I mean, typically it's, it's anger, it's repulsion, it's disbelief, it's self-flagellation, it's despair, um, it's a kind of hopelessness at the situation we find ourselves in, that we've made for ourselves, in terms of how we've destroyed our own environment. But then occasionally, there are these projects that consciously seek out a kind of beauty in these ruinous landscapes, or seek to extract a certain aesthetic expression from them, which is precisely what you've done in, in working with these hazardous chemicals and producing this beautiful gradient and these beautiful objects from them. And the question is, to what extent do you find yourself challenged by the, the aesthetization of destruction? Mm -hmm. It's a perennial topic, I think, in the context of design and architecture. Uh, and I'm thinking specifically of this academic, Elizabeth Meyer, who writes uh, about the topic that she's coined of sustaining beauty. Mm. And tries to, in her own way, unpack this, uh, this seduction around these ruined landscapes or these hazardous landscapes and their inherent beauty. So it's, I mean, there's a whole, mm. there's a wider context of this conversation and there's no value judgment being made about it. It's more kind of curiosity yeah, about what absolutely. you do with that. I think um, the project itself is not about an aestheticization of destruction. It, it does, as you're saying, come out of a really long thesis, and I don't mean school thesis, I mean life thesis interest in South Africa's landscapes. And, you know, I've had several research projects uh, that did develop out of my master's thesis. Counterspace's first project in Chicago at the Chicago Biennial 
was also a research project related to my thesis research on the mind dumps and there we were thinking about all the different complex narratives about these spaces and also um, the chemical compounds that are tied to these different mythologies. There are, it's scientific, but there are also myths about Johannesburg having the most iridescent sunsets, which is attributed to the fact that we have these iridescent flecks of dust in our environment, and these are toxic, but they're also what produces these iridescent sunsets. So that was one of the strands in the project, working to translate this atmospheric phenomenon, which is something I think outside of how I was, what I was taught architecture is, bricks and mortar and building. And the, this intent to think about the light in this way or to work to translate these colors into something material is an interest that is coming from these other spaces in Johannesburg that might not necessarily have been translated into form. Then there's also the interest in thinking about materially what happens with the waste on mine dumps. And my thesis research looked at how we can usefully extract um, these hard heavy metal pigments from the water which are these incredibly vibrant colors and are still metallic but they're removed from the water that that water will never be able to be potable um, and completely clean but it is less harmful for the environment once the heavy metals are extracted from it and working with these mirrors to stain them essentially involves the same chemical compounds that are extracted from mine waste. Um, and during the thesis research, I also worked with a chemical engineer, Dr. Craig Sheridan, um, as well as an anthropologist and, and several other collaborators on my research. And uh, he, we looked at the possibility of extracting these heavy metals from water and we actually worked through that during my thesis year. And this was an expansion on that material idea. So in a sense, doing something with these heavy metal compounds. And then physically, as you said, it's exhibited on a wine estate and it was intended for, it was intended for a mine waste dump itself. So, and, and these mirrors are folded, so they also are meant to bring together different perspectives physically, to situate contexts of resource with contexts of labor and contexts of extraction with contexts of um, labor. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are many different intents in the project and they manifest as this object Thank you for saying it's beautiful, um, but it, 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 I think it was a very young project from a, very, from a young person and for me was a method of drawing these many different thoughts with different strands and with different trajectories. Um, and also I think it's something that I see will come into my work later on a material level in terms of the recyclability of this kind of waste, but also I think on an atmospheric level in terms of how we think about uh, the hue and the ambience of color. It's something that I thought about 
when we were working on the scenography of the Biennale with OMA as well, there were many spaces where we thought about being immersed in, for example, a golden light or... I'm going to trail off and sound cheesy, but I think, I think these are methods of drawing that we then take into bigger projects and other projects elsewhere. And, and those strands of drawing also manifest in so many different trajectories. Mm. Um, so it's difficult to, to um, encapsulate it as saying it's, it's about this one thing. Um, and and also it's it is it is an early project so it is very I mm. think explorative and experimental. I think the the ambitions or the interests that you've articulated though still apply to both the Serpentine Pavilion and the more recent project of yours, the um, Islamic Arts Biennale mm -hmm. in Jeddah, where in both cases the ambition is to produce a kind of atmosphere mm -hmm. and manifest certain sensations in an audience mm -hmm. that are in a way supposed to be quite abstract and almost ineffable. I mean, they come from very concrete sources and maybe if we focus on the Serpentine first, um, explicit formal references or at least echoes of formal references to spaces like domestic porches in Brixton market stalls in Whitechapel, uh, a bar that, I'm quoting the, I'm quoting the journalist on Ollie Wainwright now, um, in his imagination summons the ghosts of bulldozed music venues like the Four Acres or the Four Aces in Dalston. There's a long low bench come table in a corner that was inspired by a table that you saw used as a iftar gathering on the street outside the Al Manar Mosque in North Kensington. So there are these, there are these concrete references or allusions to spaces that you occupied or researched mm. as you were designing the pavilion, but the result is highly abstracted. Mm. You seem comfortable with abstraction, and I wonder yes. if you could talk more about abstraction as your kind of modus operandi at this point in your career. Why well, is it useful to you? I'm going to sound so basic, but <laughs> architecture is abstract. And I think what I'm doing in my practice is making a concerted effort to find to find different sources for the origins of that abstraction. Because I think what has happened in the canon and the profession more broadly is that we've inherited so much that we don't deeply question. And I'm not suggesting that we go back and deeply question every size of every window pane. But I think that though the languages that we've inherited could do with being supplemented or even being overtaken, dare I say, by other origins that come from different ways of being, that come from different value systems, that come from, um, from difference. Perhaps, you know, sometimes we do need to be more explicit than other times. But I also think that architecture operates in a medium of abstraction. And I think it's powerful in that it operates in that medium. So I think it's beautiful also. And I believe deeply in the project of beauty as a form of social justice. I think earlier I talked about um, 
about service delivery projects in South Africa. And of course, I think that these are incredibly important, but I also think that there is, there are realms of practice or there are kind of architectural camps in South Africa that polarize um, desire for beauty and, and projects of service delivery where projects of service delivery are seen as urgent and to be, to engage in beauty is kind of willful in them. And I think that it's ignoring or it's dismissing the deep project of social justice which is about forms of expression, which is about celebrating identities, and which is about moving those identities into a level of abstraction so that they can just be celebrated in the everyday, so that we can inhabit worlds where we are primordially resonating with what's around us. And it is affirming our belief systems, it's affirming our senses of belonging, it is indicating to us who we are and we're in conversation with it, we're able to evolve it. I think, I do think, I'm sounding philosophical, but I do think that architecture operates in that realm of abstraction, where it is able to touch something inside of us and it's able to affirm things inside of us. And often we can't quite put our finger on what those things are, but those things all have origins. And earlier we were talking about agency and the individual. I think it's the responsibility of the architect as the individual to translate something, whatever that, it, that is. And in my case, I believe that if we're working with communities, the responsibility is not on the community to tell us what they want. It's on us as the architect to translate something from that realm into architecture. We have to listen deeply to all these forces and then we have to translate them. I don't know if I answered the question. No, I think, I think you did. I think we're getting somewhere. I think we're ending on a point, or at least I want to end on a point now about what your practice is or wants to be in the context of this reflection on the relationships between beauty and social justice which, as you said, aren't mutually exclusive. Um, and also in this, this kind of mode of interpretation, which I'm hearing you describe, that is the remit of the architect, which goes beyond conventional wisdom of community engagement mm. and consultation. Mm. I mean, just for a moment, you've, in another interview, you've explained that if you weren't an architect, uh, you'd be a writer, and you'd be a writer of fiction. Yeah. And I think this, this perspective you've described on observing a given community or a given culture and distilling an aesthetic expression from it, to me, has close ties with the practice of writing fiction. You kind of have identified to me the novelist's gaze, mm -hmm. which personally I feel is inherent to the architect's gaze as well. but popularly or conventionally, that may not be so much the case. Because the outputs in, in this context are things like pavilions, exhibitions, texts. Hmm. Um, and very, very less the case are they buildings themselves and buildings that really affect the way people live. Housing, for example, or um, transport infrastructure. 
Um, I mean, you talked about my, the mind as this major dividing boundary mm. between, literally between races in yeah. um, South Africa. And so to me, there's kind of two directions that we see here. Yes. I think at the moment my practice is formed and forged by the opportunities I have. And I very much believe in and enjoy the opportunity to work on pavilions or the Biennale, in, in which case I was very lucky to be the artistic director of the first edition, to be able to shape the definition of what Islamic art is in this edition and also work on parts of the infrastructure of the project uh, to engage deeply with the history of the site of the project. That's been really incredible as a realm of thinking and research. Um, my ambitions for my practice is that I will create buildings and still continue to work in the realm of pavilions, exhibitions, biennales, because I think that those are sites for thinking about how we make the future. And yes, of course, a building also is that. Perhaps, I don't know, the um, conditions around creating a pavilion or a biennale mean that there are certain latitudes. There are also lesser latitudes in many respects, but it is, it is a site for thinking perhaps more experimentally about what future typologies can look like, where the origins can come from. I want to be able to translate that into building buildings. I mean, I think I didn't word that question very well at all, but what I'm realizing it was is a question about when, if ever, mm. the practice transitions from one that engages in fictions to one that... Um, makes fictions, makes them real. Makes facts. Makes facts. And I feel like that superficially is an unfair juxtaposition. But what I mean is that there's a certain, there's a, there's a factness to you and I sitting in this room right now. Mm -hmm. There's a factness to the way that you got from where you're living to where we met. There's a factness, um, if that's even a word, to how we move through the urban environment that differs from the fictions we're exposed to in the context of an exhibition or through the experience of reading an essay. And that's not to say that one takes value or precedence over the other, but to me they are different modes of practice. And I mean, it reminds me maybe of a position that an architect like Rem Koolhaas may have been in at the outset of his career, where there's this intense generation of fiction and speculation, mm -hmm. retroactive manifestos, beautifully and memorably illustrated, and then at some point, these ideas manifest in built form. And maybe this is a totally outmoded way of thinking about the progression of one's career now. But it sounds like for you there still is this idea that the ideas, the, fa the fictions you're engaging with in your curatorial work and in the exhibition work will at some point um, manifest as facts in the city. And I wonder if we could talk specifically about how that might take shape. I think the distinction between fact and fiction is a little bit tricky. If what we're manifesting 
in the experimental projects for me is coming from other ways ways of being and other modes of practice and it's working to make those make a concerted effort to manifest them into something real um, if we think about the scale of the Biennale for example it's 20,000 square meters many of the artworks are large-scale installations several of them are spaces that host other activities, other artistic activations, other events. So many of them are small buildings in and of their own right. But the project of making this definition of Islamic art for me is a project of fact because it means that there is now in the discourse a definition of Islamic art that is not tied to 17th century France and chronology geography or style and aesthetic it's tied to practice and themes and rituals and forms of community that are resonant with with me but also with so many people who observe the same um, every day and i think that will hopefully lead to built interventions and forms of practice that are going to be generative and factual and become more real but they have to start somewhere even for me to start to put that down as an agenda um, was not plausible in the beginning and i think there was a lot of cynicism not from my team or, for, or from the foundation who enabled the project but from people who were looking at the project from the outside or people that we were inviting to engage on the project, many of them said that to define something as Islamic is a limitation and that there is this inherited canon and tradition of what, it, of what Islamic is. And to be able to take that title and reclaim it and configure it into something else and to understand it as a platform for other people to come in and define something in a way that is going to be regenerative, not only for the title or for the canon of Islamic art, but also for my practice in general, is for me, I think, something that feels factual or maybe it's prefact. If I think about the origins of counter space in Johannesburg, there are so many small research projects and ways of thinking and ways of being that led to the, the design of the pavilion, for example, and so many of those methods that have led to the uh, conceptualization of Awul Bayt, the first Islamic arts biennale. So I think that ideas also manifest in the realm that we have available for them and when there is a more concrete more permanent arena available then those ideas will translate into that form the, the pavilion for example the idea that it had these fragments comes from a method of practice that i have in many other things that was perhaps more ephemeral than the pavilion, but then translated into something less ephemeral in that regard. There's just two final like, follow-up questions I wanted to ask, but maybe we can just walk over there because the clarinet yeah. is distracting. Um, 
maybe we can sit here. One was the fact that you mentioned you were at some point studying Arabic. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've heard you mention elsewhere that um, your mother tongue is English. Yes. I, I've also heard you recount the experience of listening to your grandmother speak. Um, and in a way, I think to myself, this is somehow inappropriate or uh, maybe way off the mark, but there is an aesthetic delight in listening to a language we cannot understand. And perhaps you do understand what your grandmother was saying, or you did as a child. But I imagine the melodies and cadences and rhythms of the language mm-hmm. are what were most compelling to you. And for me, it's that same, same sensation I experience when I see the work that you do, when I think about it, to me, there's an assumption that we're dealing with certain ineffable or incomprehensible phenomena, and yet we're in search of modes of conveying it, be it rhythm, be it cadence, be it color, be it form. And that's a, a beautiful sentiment about the, the melody and the incomprehensibility of the language. But I think it's also important to understand that what's incomprehensible for us is comprehensible for others. And also that embedded in a language is a set of, a set of articulations or, or tools to articulate the world that really vary from language to language. My grandmother, well, my grandparents um, spoke Gujarati and my parents' mother tongue is Gujarati. I can speak Gujarati, um, but my mother tongue is English. If I think about, for example, Urdu versus Gujarati, I think I don't know much Urdu. Um, My parents and my grandparents also can speak Urdu, but Urdu is a much more flowery, much more descriptive, much more romantic and intellectual language than Gujarati. And so I think the ways to describe the world and the forms of expression that are embedded in those are are also of that nature. Um, and I, I, in the same way, I think architecturally, there are so many articulations of space that come from different ways of how space is understood in different cultures. And I'm, I'm hoping that we can work to expand our languages for architecture through these other languages, through our other languages. And then the last question, it goes back to the beginning of the conversation around, in a way, the self-formation that has and continues to take place and does in anyone's early career. Um, And I'm specifically curious about what the experience has been like post-Serpentine of what seems like a deluge of accolades, of invitations to speak and engage with wide audiences, be it um, at the World Economic Forum or on the stage at Goldman Sachs, 
or over at Harvard. Um, accolades like um, honorary professorship from the Bartlett School of Architecture. How do you, what do you do with that? To me, I could imagine it, it would be quite a struggle to know how to operate uh, in the context of, um, again, a real influx of recognition at a very early point in one's career. Mm. I don't feel like I'm at an early point in my career. I feel, to be honest, like I've been doing this work in a vacuum for a very long time. And maybe 10 years doesn't feel long for some people, but I think considering the urgency of the project and how short life is, I feel like I have so much work to do. And for a long time, I was making this practice and it felt like speaking in, into a vacuum and it felt incredibly misunderstood and also I think many people questioned the relevance of these ideas in the architectural realm and questioned um, their ability to translate into form or translate into anything. So. It feels for me like, uh, of course, I'm, I'm incredibly honored by the recognition and also I think it's important that, to acknowledge that when we have more visibility, it means that it gives others the confidence to be able to participate and engage in work from their own perspectives and, and Hopefully that, hopefully it does do some of that. Um, but I still feel like I have so much work to do and I don't have any time. Yeah. I think on that note, we should draw this conversation to a close. Sorry to end on an anticlimax. <laughs> no, I think it's incredibly climactic. To me, it's, in, it's inspiring to think that someone born in 1990 has this urgency to the work they're doing and this real understanding of really how limited the time is that they have. Um, I find it incredibly inspiring and motivating personally. Um, this whole discussion has been a real pleasure and revelation for me. So, Samaya, so thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. I think a lot of these other platforms like the World Economic Forum and all my friends in fashion and things really make me feel like we don't have time. I think architects, why do we study for so long and then take so long to grow up? And no? Mm -hmm. Is it off now? It's on still. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>